We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey there, Knicks fans. How you doing? It's your boy, Jonathan Macri, with you for another episode of the Knicks Film School podcast. Uh, coming at you on a Wednesday. Uh, preseason obviously opened a few days ago. Hope everybody was able to join us uh, for our first post game of the of the year, even though it's a game that didn't count. Um, we will, of course, have post games uh, for the rest of the preseason games. And when we get there, uh, the uh, start of the regular season and, and onwards and upwards from there. Um, today, though, we have a very special segment, interview, conversation, whatever you want to call it, with someone who I um, have been lucky enough to get to know uh, a little bit over the last few years because he's just a massive Knicks fan and we kind of chat offline a lot. So it was great to be able to bring him on the pod for the first time in in <laughs> several years. Alan Seppenwall, uh, an absolute institution in modern journalism. I mean, it's not so many people in the world that could say that they are the pre- preeminent uh, person at anything. And uh, Alan Seppenwall is the preeminent uh, television critic, as far as I'm concerned, at least I'm obviously a little bit biased, but uh, that we have working today. Um, you know, he's been writing for for Rolling Stone for forever, and he's obviously the author of many books, including a new one that is coming out in a month and a half about the OC. It's an oral history of the OC, um, which we say it during the pod, but uh, I'll say it now. Uh, if you're interested in, in ordering that book, there's a link in the description of this episode. Um, so we talk a little bit about that towards the end, but we spend most of the time on the Knicks. We get into a little bit of of where media is at and and the current state of kind of you know how it is to have a, a a discourse about things that you're passionate about, which both him and I share. Um, so yeah, we had a great time talking, and uh, I think you're going to enjoy the conversation. So uh, without further ado, here is my talk with Alan Seppenwall. Alan Seppenwall, how are you, my friend? I haven't been on here since you know it was audio only the last time I did this. Yes. So yes. your operation has leveled up quite a bit. Clearly. <laughs> It's been it's been a while. I remember it was fairly soon ish after the book came out. So how many I mean, years, right? If the book came out like before the pandemic. So yeah. oh yes, it was just well before the pandemic. Oh my god, yeah, this was like January of 2019. So it's been a minute. Yeah, it's been a minute. Um, I don't think we talked about it then, but I was first introduced to your voice. I knew who you were, but I was first first time I heard your voice was when you were on uh, the late great. Uh, long twos podcast with uh, Mike Vorkanoff of the athletic <laughs> made, made rest in peace. And you were talking about the idea of like Pollyanna Knicks fans versus um, people who are perhaps a little bit more realistic. And it's so funny that uh, you talk about coming full circle, maybe not full circle. Come, I, I don't know. We've come a long way since then. And I, I just want to start because you're as big a Knicks fan as I know, even though you don't write about them, you're, you're busy writing about other stuff. Like you were once upon a time, like the poster child for like, this is not going to end well. How are you feeling these days? I'm feeling pretty good. I will say this. 
the way that this Giants football season has gone so far has kind of put the fear of God into me because this is another local sports team that like played, you know, above its head last season. And everyone thought, okay, they made a lot of good additions, a lot of sensible things. So now they will just continue to be good. And in fact, they are instead a complete catastrophe. I don't think that's going to happen with the Knicks because I do think that there's a solid foundation at the same time. Like uh, I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop because I've got, you know, 30 plus years of conditioning for that, you know, to prepare for Julius to go back to, you know, every other year, Julius for RJ, you know, for playoff RJ to be yet another tease of what RJ Barrett can be, et cetera. And also just for like other teams in the East to level up ahead of us, even though we've got continuity. But like, I like this team. Jalen Brunson is the best player I've been watching on the Knicks since Patrick Ewing. He's the most fun player to watch, maybe in my lifetime watching the Knicks, other than like two weeks of Jeremy Lin. So it's <laughs> like, it's a, it's a good time to be a Knicks fan, I think. I think it's a good time to be a Knicks fan, too. My question was going to be, how much does, does Jalen Brunson warm your, you know, cold, chiseled granite piece, piece of rock that was where your heart used to be? <laughs> oh um, I think God. you just answered that. Yeah. <laughs> He, I mean, doesn't he? But isn't he the failsafe, right? Where you feel like he's here. He's so here. Be okay. I mean, he's not perfect. He's not like one of you know. He's not Steph Curry or something. But he is fantastic. When you get him into the paint, he makes all of these insane post up moves. It's almost like you're watching Hakeem or something. It's ridiculous. Only if Hakeem was below six feet tall. Um, it's really he's a bucket, and you know we haven't had one of those in a long time. Even mellow, and you know, we we can talk about mellow if you want to. I felt I like a, yeah, I felt like a lot of the time mellow would just hold the ball for the entire possession in more or less the same spot and then take a shot. And I never felt like hugely confident that it was going to go in, even though his his shooting percentage tended to be really good. Whenever Brunson has the ball, I feel good. I also feel good when Brunson has the ball, which is funny because. Coming off of the FIBA World Cup. Did you watch any of the World Cup? I mean, I know you're busy, but it was it was usually on in the morning when I was just getting to work. So I would sort of yeah. see people tweeting about it, but, the, you know, yeah. or posting on other social sites. But that was about it. You, you didn't miss that much. I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, I, I'm surprised because like the there he I would I actually say he probably came out of that uh, um, a little worse for the wear because the, you know, the talk about the Halliburton may have been a better fit with the surrounding talent is more of a pick and roll point guard, the whole thing. It doesn't dampen my enthusiasm for Jalen Brunson one iota because I think specifically for where he is with this team on this roster. And it was nice to see him coming out against the C squad last night for the Celtics and, and kind of own them for six minutes. But even besides that, I, I just, he seems very cut out for the city. And I know you, that is something that we have talked about in the past. I think that matters, doesn't it? I think it matters to a degree. I think sometimes it gets overstated, but I remember sure. like this is a reference probably too old even for you, John. The Yankees once had a pitcher named Ed Whitson who they signed as a free agent, I believe from the Padres. And like he had been really good there and he melted down to the point where like, I'm probably misremembering. This is probably apocryphal at this point, but I feel like he had a gun in his locker or something because he was just so afraid of like the fans booing him constantly. I'm sure that's wrong. I don't want to be libeling, you know, Ed Whitson or anything like that. But like we've seen this happen with athletes. They come here, they can't play well, but ultimately I think much more than the toughness. And that's great. It's just, he's really freaking good. Yeah. And we've for years with this team, it's just, uh, like when was the last time we had a high powered strong ball moving offense was it like the you know the fall of 2010 with the amare wilson chandler gallinari team? that was a, that was a fun t- I, I like that team a lot for those four months we got yeah. it or whatever it was yes yeah it's it's it either fun. that it's either that or the 54 win season team for the first couple of months of that so it's like most of the last 15 years you know most of the century we've had this really ugly ball stopping offense you know, where it's like yep. you kind of have to hold your breath for 24 seconds and hope for the best. And now we've got Brunson. And I feel like, again, he can get a bucket at any point. And I think ultimately his skill matters more than the toughness. But the toughness is really welcome, too. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people just, you know, shouted at something when you said, like, you know, we don't have a ball stopping offense anymore because they're still like no no we, no, we, we totally do and when he was out Wait. of the game last night i was kind of losing my mind like how can we not score against the celtic c squad and i know it's preseason and I, it doesn't matter but yeah i gotta say though 
like I, I think there is something to everybody. Not forget knowing your role, embracing your role. Like watching the, I can't get over watching. I've been thinking about it all day watching the starting lineup coming out last night. Like those guys, all five of those guys, they know exactly yeah. what they're doing out there, and they're able to do it pretty well. I think the ball moves when it needs to. Now, maybe a different conversation come playoff time, but um, I, I feel good about the team right now. The, the I want to ask you this because I know like the idea of Nick's culture we've talked about probably as much as any other topic. And like, I'm trying to separate out, like for instance, Brunson, maybe this players on this team, Tibbs, you know, you want to get into Leon Rose as an organization. It feels like they've, I don't want to say turned a corner, but like, there's not this like icky, dreadful cloud over everything, which even in the 12, 13 season, it was almost like they had just been in this not great place. And then they ended up going back to the not great place very soon after. So yeah. I, do, do you think that there is legitimate like change in the organization or is this just like Leon and Wes like kind of started bringing their buddies aboard and it all went from there? I think it's kind of a mix. I think like definitely, tw- you know, the, the 54 win team, was it 12, 13 or 13, 14? I can never remember. 12, 13. Okay, and then so, Bargnani yeah. was, was 13, 14. Okay. So the, ugh, Bargnani. the 12, the 12, 13 team, what well, like it felt like it was kind of built on quicksand to begin with. Cause it was relying on a lot of really old guys who were basically out of the league after that season, you know, or couldn't really play anymore. Um, Mike Woodson didn't seem to understand why the team was good. Mello was forced to play power forward basically because we didn't have anybody else. And we know that he hated to do it. So it sort of all this stuff that was happening almost as a fluke. And so even though it was great to watch and I really loved that season, it didn't feel sustainable and it proved to not be. This definitely feels like much more of a solid foundation. Um, I definitely have a lot of questions about what Leon does, especially when it, with regards to the draft but the actual roster is is very good. Um, we've got a lot of guys who, you know, at, at le- you know, as you've said, could play in any team's rotation anywhere in the league, and that has value. And Brunson could play for any team in the league. You know, there's right. definitely teams he wouldn't start for, you know, like Golden State. But um, he's fantastic. Randall is kind of a trickier fit, but I, you know, when he's where on, where you at on Randall? Really. Where I'm at is he's our second best player. I don't think it's particularly close as much as I love Emmanuel quickly as you know, like there's players on the team. I enjoy watching more, but I think it's very clear, like for this team to be good, Randall has to be good. And I remember like how effective he was right before he rolled the ankle at the end of last season and what a bummer it was to watch him in the playoffs. And then there was like a couple of quarters here and there in the playoffs where like he was feeling just good enough that he could start rolling downhill. And I'm like, Jesus. They can't stop him when he does yeah. that. Yeah. So he's got so much skill. And when he sort of has his head on right, I think he's fantastic. And so it's just, but you never know. It's, you know, it's the box of chocolates. What are you going to get? <laughs> I think I'm, I'm going to make the first of probably several bad television analogies. He is to me at this point, like a, a sitcom that's been on for a while and it's not the best show, but like there is a comfort and there, if it's a weird word to use, with a guy who has had some, uh, I don't know, volatility issues over the years, but yeah. like knowing he's going to be out there to give you 20 and 10 or 25 and 10 there. I think there's something to that, that I, I know I still do take for granted. I'm going to, I'm going to try hard not to this year. Um, go back to Mello for a sec. Uh, I wonder it's weird because he's like a top 75 all time player. He's first about, about all famer, the whole thing. Like he's revered. He's loved in many quarters of the, of the internet. I'm wondering could his career got have gone any worse? Like given his talent, couldn't you make the argument that it just all overwhelmed him here and not overwhelmed him, but like, you know what I'm trying to get at here? Like imagine if he had gone to a more functional organization at the time. I mean, it's certainly going to this terrible organization in the midst of a historically bad run of general managers. And I include Donnie Walsh in that for that period. Cause I think Donnie, Donnie was a disaster here and like you can always be like well dolan stepped in and did this donnie could have quit and donnie made a number of other really bad moves over time so regardless that he came to a bad team in a really bad 20-year stretch of just mistake after mistake after mistake at the same time and i apologize in advance to andrew because i know andrew loves mellow so much of what went wrong in mellow's career is on mellow Mello could have waited until the 2011 offseason to come here. He did not want to. 
he wanted to make sure he got every possible dollar he could get. And that is well within his right. And I never want to tell any player like take less. He wanted to get, he wanted to maximize his salary because he was worried about the new CBA. And so he said to his agent, you know, he said to his agent, who is this agent, by the way, I don't know what happened to that guy. He said to Leon, get my ass to New York as soon as possible. So I can sign that extension. And they, they had to gut the team to do that. And the team was always sort of trying to dig out of that hole and they did a very bad job of digging out of that hole most of the time, other than that one season. So that was part of it, certainly. But also, he didn't want to play power forward, even though that was very obviously his best position, other than the one year where he kind of had no choice. And I just think, in general, he had a higher estimation of both his abilities and his place in the NBA pecking order than was actually merited by his talent. He's a Hall of Famer. He's an incredible scorer. His game was not really well-rounded at all. And even as a scorer, you know, there were always guys who were better than him. You know, probably I would have to go through the numbers, but usually like, uh, you know, at least a half a dozen guys who were more efficient than him at high usage. Um, So he was an all-star. He was the best guy the Knicks had for years and years and years. But at the same time, I think he just did not understand his limitations and didn't understand like how to best maximize his situation. And then again, he took, the contract from Phil. He wanted to maximize his dollars again, totally within your rights. Do that, yep. you know, get that bag. It's, t- it's great mellow. And he also took the no trade clause. And as a result, he wound up like trapped here when nobody wanted him here other than maybe, I guess he wanted himself here. And eventually he wound up in Oklahoma city where yeah. he didn't want to go. So yeah, I don't even know if he wanted to be here at the end. I think I just, I, it was just such a bad. I'm, okay. Here's in fairness. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give Andrew, I'm going to set, I'm going to give him, <laughs> I'm going to give Andrew 60 seconds. How about this? We're going to give Andrew, because he could talk for the next two hours about this in response. 60 seconds, Andrew. This is, Listen, your, this is your floor. I did it. When Mello retired this summer, we did a full pod with the casuals where we had a 90-minute conversation about all of this. So I don't want to rehash old things that our audience has heard. Yes, you I, do. I have great respect for Alan Seppenwall. In fact, to prepare myself to advertise his, the book that's going to be up on your screen at the very end, I went and got my two Seppenwall books. So that hey! way you guys can see that if you take my opinion <laughs> as anything, is that I, I don't read people that I don't think are smart. So this is true. I know having that. that having all of that said, the only pushback I have, because I agree with you. Partially, 100%, maybe like 95% with the the Phil Jackson era stuff, because they're just like, he was clearly a different player at that point in his career post-surgery and the the decline, he was clearly headed toward a a 2C, not even like a 2B best player on a team. He just Mm. needed to find the right spot. And I think Portland is the spot that finally unlocked what he was able to do in that portion of his career. Uh, Wrap it up. That listen, <laughs> most of it was uh plugging Alan Seppenwall. And I appreciate qu- that. That's the only fair. question I have, because of what was going on in the NBA during the 2010-2011 season, the entire players organization, the, the higher-ups, Chris Paul, his buddy, was like Stearns is prepared to cancel the entire upcoming season. You need to be on your next contract before you before this lockout starts before we go into this upcoming off season with that uncertainty it's why especially since denver was going to trade him anyway darren williams got traded to the nets the next day after the mellow trade so he was going to get traded anyway does that matter at all that him not waiting until that off season we didn't know when that off season was going to happen and now hindsight it's like well he should have waited but in the moment i remember all the different basketball pods I was listening to saying like, you're going to see guys force themselves to where they want to be on the other side of this, this, this lockout this summer. Does that matter at all? Not really, because I remember, okay, no, 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 I was online. I was on Nick's boards on Nick's sites, you know, at the time. And we were all kind of, at least the places I hung out, we were all tearing our hair out at the idea. Why are we going to trade for this guy? When we could sign him in the summer, why does he want to get traded? You know, and then why is he telling people I will go to New York or to New Jersey at that time, thus killing our leverage? So, you know, it was just it was maddening. And I didn't really want him to begin with. I didn't think he was a good fit with Amare. And obviously Amare was another Donnie Walsh mistake because you can't sign that guy to that contract with those knees. 
but it was just like, I really liked that team. And maybe that team ceiling was relatively low, but you could have done other stuff with those guys. You could have gotten somebody else for Gallinari. We're, we're going off all tangent. The team is good now. Let's talk about this team. I Come agree. On. My, only pushback, and my only pushback has always been the where the lockout was coming and the looming lockout coming. And you mentioned Donnie Walsh. Like, if Amari's knees don't hurt, they were trading for their second guy. When then Amari did what a lot of people thought his knees were going to do and yeah. became more of an injury liability. They were then still looking for the second guy after Melo got here. And I guess... I don't have the same affection that you and John have for those first 42 games of competence oh, that the Knicks had. I, I agree. It was fun. And like the seven seed can be fun when you've been the 13th seed forever. I saw a team that became the two seed two years later. So right. I, I've always been pro trade and it's every single, like he didn't trade for Bonyarni. You know, he didn't amnesty <laughs> Johnny Billups. He didn't, you know, he, uh, he did chase Jeremy Lin out of town. I mean, Jeremy Lin turned back into a pumpkin once he left, but you know, but did did Jerry did Mello tear Jeremy Lin's meniscus? Did Mello take? No, a, no, like, he didn't. But okay, th- this is the one last thing I will say, which is mm-hmm. Mello was terrible to watch. Like he was just see, he would hold the goddamn ball and jab step and jab step and jab step, and the other guys are running around, and at a certain point they stop running because they're never going to get the ball. It was like he had three moves, and the moves were really effective. But they kind of sucked where like aesthetically, whereas Brunson will also hold the ball. But like it's it, he's a whirling dervish and it's kind of thrilling to see how is he going to weave around all of these much larger guys. And so you had a, you had this long period of a decade where he was or about a decade where Mello was our best player. And even when they were playing at sort of a higher level, it was not it was not fun most of the time. And that, I think, is the core not conflict because like we're all Knicks fans where we're all rooting for the team at the same time. But the core difference is that I, I loved watching Melo and his, the artwork into his shooting and how he was able to get buckets and the league, like every young player or now older player is like, yeah, Melo's the first guy that gave me work when it came to guarding him. But I understand that there are many like you and like John that experienced the mellow well, tenure differently and to transition and hand it back over to John. <laughs> I feel they're the same way with Julius Randall when he can jab step and wait too long to pass out of a double team. Yes. And then he puts up yeah. a, a fade away. It goes in and you're like, okay, I, this is a difficult shot maker. And he did a really good job doing that. The, well done. Uh, again, I'll call it a draw. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash Blue Wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Blue Wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shea Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shea Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Dom- Dominic Toretto, I live my life a quarter mile at a time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. 
trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. This was a perfect transition because the next thing I actually wanted to ask you um, is about the because you're I consider you a modern master of media. I hope you don't mind that that designation. No, because you you are part of the old world. You you write for the I mean as a as esteemed a publication as still exists uh, nowadays. Um, at, but at the same time, you have transitioned to again. You have a Substack. You are an author. You are online. Um, I. The way we talk about the NBA, the Knicks, sports in general, I it it it's it's a very strange time for me, and I'm just curious if you like have any thoughts on it because it feels this is going to sound so silly because it's probably very obvious, but like it is, it does feel to me more divisive than ever before. Is that just because there are more people? Is it is it just louder? Do you think this is a New York thing? Like, where where what are your thoughts on that? I think that I think we're all louder. I think we're all angrier. I think we've all been sort of conditioned. Like, I love a lot of things about the Internet, but one of the worst things about the Internet is it has allowed people to go into their own respective echo chambers and like just have their own opinion repeated and repeated and repeated until like they can't really even fathom why someone would think something else. And then you start have to start ascribing motives to that person, you know, yeah. it's like, you know, well, how dare you not see the Cam Reddish is a budding all star, that kind of thing. Um, you know, not to poke the Cam Hive, but it just it becomes a lot of that. It's there in politics. It's there in sports. It's there in television. You know, if I don't like a show that you like, I must like there must be something wrong with my opinion. I must be on the take. I must be resentful of something. It can't just be that I didn't like it. Um, and that happens everywhere. And there's definitely moments where you will sort of see people come together, but it's just, it's a lot harder now. And it's very unfortunate. Do I, uh, you can tell where I'm coming from probably with this next question. Do you let that get to you at all? Because obviously I, for me to do what I do, I have to kind of stand on a hill. Sometimes I can't just be all even killed about everybody. Yeah. Sometimes I have to be like, I don't think this player is going to progress as well as you think this player is going to guess. And like, you you put in the work. You I mean you're the best that there is. So I'm I'm gonna add, like. Do you get stressed by the, the the commentary sometimes? Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's you know there yesterday. Um, I had like I tweeted my annual joke about the Columbus Day episode of The Sopranos, and this one guy on Twitter like kind of took offense. Not you know a defending the episode, which is fine. Like there are people who like that episode, and that's great. And there's good, yeah. I think, good things in that episode. But then he sort of used that again to ascribe motives to other people. It's like, well, other people don't like it because you know they only want mob stuff, and that episode doesn't really have a heavy concentration of mob stuff. And what are you doing? And I sort of politely said, like, hey man, it's okay. Like there are other episodes that are light on mob stuff that people love. And he writes back, okay, name one. And I said, okay. White Caps, which is the episode where Carmela kicks Tony out of the house, which most people think is one of the best episodes of the show. He's like, wrong. White Caps has all of this mob stuff. He starts listing it. He's just getting angrier and angrier. And at a certain point, I just had to like sit, politely say, thank you. Have a nice day. I muted him. Uh, and then, there, I mean, there are times when I just kind of lose my cool and I will send out a tweet or a Facebook comment or whatever. And then I almost immediately go and delete it because I'm just letting off steam. No good ever comes from engaging with that kind of person. I remember when I was again, talking about old media, I wrote for a newspaper for 14 years in the nineties and two thousands. And I remember I would get like angry letters sometimes and handwritten letters, hand, no handwritten or typed letters, whatever, or eventually emails. And when I would write back to these people, I would say like, you know, I'm sorry you didn't like my column. You know, I'm glad you enjoyed this thing that I didn't like, or I'm sorry. You didn't like my column. I'm sorry that I recommended something you didn't enjoy the tone of their reply would almost immediately change. And it would go from like, yeah, you know, sure. what the hell are you? What are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And suddenly like, because I'd re reached back out to them and I'd been polite, I became a person. Uh, and they're like, you know, and suddenly I'm no longer just, you know, this two dimensional image, you know, in, on grainy newsprint. And I don't really see that happening much anymore. Like I get angry emails all the time at Rolling Stone and I do the exact same thing. And I will write back like, 
you know, sorry, didn't like it. Thanks for reading or whatever. And they almost they never reply anymore. There's never any of that. People just want to be mad. And it it bums me out that that's the case. Um, I'm going to ask you an unfair question. Do you think the path to prominence is probably not the right word to just success to, ha- to continuing to have a platform to continuing to be in the consciousness is to be um, more even killed generally speaking or do you think it's like people who are have the crazy hot takes like that's the or, or do you think it's, it's just both because there's there's gonna be people who want both it's both you know obviously there's there's room for the Stephen a's in the world you know i have <laughs> yes i have almost never been johnny hot take and certainly not since maybe i turned 30 um you know like i've sort of i've learned to just sort of find ways to express my opinion without, without being an asshole about it. Um, and that's, that's very important to me uh, because there's real people doing this and there's real people reading it. Um, so you can say this didn't work for me without like actively insulting people. And for me, it's worked. Like I have a career. I'm pretty well respected. You know, I work for, you know, a publication that is esteemed most of the time, you know, every now and then we will get into hot water. Uh, but like it's, I have a career and it's been good and I think part of that is because I've tried as much as possible to be even keeled and to be generous and to engage with people online. You know, I, I ran a blog for years and years, you know, over on Blogspot, and I would always be active in the comments there. And that was back in the days when, like, you could sort of curate a good comment section. I think Substack has some of that now with my newsletter. Sure. It's been there. When I read your comments, it's like you usually don't have the insane people there because if they're bothering to subscribe... They have some level of respect for you to begin with, and they're not just going to treat you as some clown. So that's good. Um, but there's, you know, I can only do what I can do. And I'm I'm not always the nicest person in the world, both at work and in my personal life. But I try. And that's what you can do. It, I was about to say it is all you could do. Um, just a couple more about TV and then we'll get to the book. I'll get you out here. Uh, you. The, the monoculture is, uh, I, I think the monoculture is dead. Um, it used to be a thing, especially with, with TV. I mean, uh, I, you know, uh, listening to um, uh, something recently about like, you know, back in the days of like must see TV on Thursday night and the whole thing. Do you find that that makes your job easier because you can pick and choose what you think is good and what you think is worth writing about? Or do you think it makes your job more difficult now? It's a, it's a mix of those two. On the one hand, yeah, I really do have the ability to pick and choose just because there's so much stuff out there that literally there's just not enough hours in the day for anyone to see it all. Even if this is your job is my job. Even and if I didn't. Mad. Yeah, no, no. There's like 500 original TV shows released every year for the last few years scripted. Like even if I never had to write a word, even if I did not spend any time with my wife, with my children, I woke up in the morning, I turned on the TV and right. like, and, and I was, and I ate my meals in front of the TV. And basically the only time I wasn't watching is, you know, when I went to the bathroom or something, I still would not make a dent. It is not like physically possible to watch it all. And because of that, I do have the ability to say, I'm going to look at this. I'm not going to look at that. You know, I'm at a stage in my career where my editors for the most part will trust me and say, Okay, you know, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. If you think this is interesting, even though I've never heard of it, you do that, um, et cetera. And so that's that's been really nice. The challenging part, on the other hand, is like it's a lot less fun when you're writing about a show that like very few people are watching. You know, Mm -hmm. when I was covering The Sopranos, when I was covering Mad Men, when I was covering Breaking Bad, especially in the last couple of years of Breaking Bad, when everyone had binged it on Netflix and were watching it live. You know, Game of Thrones, even like those were shows being watched by a lot of people. And so you felt like engaged. There was a lot of conversation. That conversation was fun. Sometimes it would be angry. Sometimes it would be annoying. But just like there was a a buzz to it that I really, really enjoyed. And it's harder and harder to get that. And also part of it is like a lot of the shows that I would write about now, like I would do recaps of they're released as binge releases on Netflix or wherever. And so you can't really do that. And so it's very hard to find a show that's both good enough, high profile enough and released on a weekly schedule where I can do that. You know, it's like, you know, last year, you know, I was doing like Better Call Saul and Atlanta, I think last year I've I've lost track of time. Time has no meaning anymore. And like I I got to the end of the most of those shows and I'm thinking, 
is that when is the next time I'm going to have an opportunity for something like this? For a while, it seemed like the Star Wars and the Marvel shows on Disney were kind of that, even though none of them were on the level of quality, but at least a lot of people were watching. And even na- by now, I feel like the enthusiasm for them has really waned uh, for both of those brands. You know, and so some people watch some of them, but not others, and they're just less excited overall. So I'm always on the hunt for that. I, I got to just my own personal thing on this. I think, what is it? Today is Tuesday. Loki came out on Thursday. I'm I'm not like 10 out of 10 Marvel fanboy, but I'm like 8, 8.5, yeah. 8.75. I have I still haven't made time to watch it. And look, it's a busy time of year, like, you know, whatever. But I don't know. I feel like that says something. Um but we'll, we'll we'll see what happens with with the the, uh, the old MCU. Um, so I guess it's it's maybe a good time, considering there again there is no real more monoculture anymore, to give people what they want, which is maybe a look back at a time when there was stuff that everybody watched. We all, yeah, we all got to enjoy kind of as a community or or, or whatever. Um, and so you wrote a, a book about the OC, which is I think it, if it had come along like. Two years earlier, I would have been at the age where I was like all in as it was. Yeah. I remember watching the first season and then I, I kind of dipped out after that. As it stands, though, I cannot wait to read this thing. So I just want to start by asking you, why, why the OC? What, what about that interested you? Well, there's a few things. One, the very first book I wrote was about the OC. This was in the spring of 2004. Um, a, like a lot of the time in the publishing industry when something is like is suddenly unexpectedly popular, you mm. will see a rush to cash in by like, okay, you got to put out a book real fast. Yeah. And so in that case, somebody reached out to me and said, hi, can you write us an OC book in a month? And I said, okay. <laughs> and I did it. And like, as in the process of doing it, like they kept saying, because this is unauthorized, you can't talk about this. You can't talk about this. You can't describe the plot too much, or we could be like <laughs> subject. Yeah, it was really crazy. And so the actual book, which by the way, is called stop being a hater and learn to love the OC. Um, Great title. Like there's chapters. I, I got it over my shelf here. There's chapters about like listing every single song featured on the show. There's chapters about like Seth Cohen likes comic books. Here are some graphic novels you might like, might like to buy. <laughs> like, it's just, it's not barely even a book, but that got me into the book publishing and, you know, business. And then uh, about a year, year and a half ago, the creator of the OC, Josh Schwartz, and his longtime partner, creative partner, Stephanie Schwartz, Stephanie Savage, rather, reached out to me and said, hey, the 20th anniversary is coming up. We really want to do an oral history. We think we can get all the cast to agree to do it. You know, you wrote the first book on the show. We would love to have you do it again. And I thought, OK, one, I've never written an oral history, so that might be fun. Two, I still have deep affection for the show, both when it was good and when it was bad. And at times it was really bad. (laughs) And three, it gives me a chance to write a real book about the OC instead of, you know, this weird pamphlet that bought me a washer and dryer in the spring of 2004. (laughs) So I I did that. I adore oral histories for some reason, like um, this summer, right? There was an oral history of, of Hollywood that I got and I, I love that. I, the, um, there was the, uh, all, all of the, my God, he's over my shoulder. The uh, James Andrew Miller uh, oral histories, which are, which are great too. I, I think that's in particular why I'm really fascinated to, to dig into this, especially since, and I think you mentioned this in a recent newsletter of yours, it's not just a, a book about, well, I mean, it's about the OC, but it's also just like a look back into that time of television yeah. when things were very different. Um, like how much I'm sure you enjoyed that aspect of it as well. Yeah, no, there, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of just sort of it's a time capsule of what TV was like, as you said, when the broadcast networks were still the the biggest game in town. They weren't the only game in town by that point because, you know, Sopranos and The Wire and stuff were on. But it was still like. When you turned on your TV, you would start with like a single digit number and you would see what ABC, NBC, Fox, CBS had um, and go from there. So it was definitely a time of the monoculture. And it was a time where like shows were produced under these insane schedules that were not healthy for everyone. So now you've got Netflix shows that maybe make 10 episodes a season and usually will make six to eight. The OC in its first season made 27 uh, you know, that's more than most Netflix shows ever make. And so they did. The, they made all of these episodes in a little under a year. Everyone was really burnt out by it. You know, the show kind of creatively never quite recovered from having to do that much that quickly. 
Wow. So there's a lot of talk about that. There's a lot of talk about like the things you have to deal with when you're working at a big broadcast network, the compromises. There's a storyline in season two with Olivia Wilde where she plays a bisexual like club manager and she winds up um, having a relationship with the Misha Barton character. Mm. And like on the one hand, certain people at Fox really wanted to promote this and they're like trying to put a kiss you know, a girl on girl kiss into ads while other people at Fox are like, you can't do this. You have to stop the storyline right now. We're getting protested. You know, Congress is mad at the TV business because of Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake. Oh. Oh, and it was yeah. just like, you know, the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. So there's all sort of that crazy stuff going on. And on top of that, on top of this moment in time, there's also just the larger idea of like, what happens when you go from zero to 60 like fame wise, phenomena wise, and then everything dials back after that. So like Adam Brody, Ben McKenzie, Misha Barton, Rachel Bilson all go from like unknown to enormous stars and the show becomes a phenomenon. And when the series started, everyone's hanging out together. They're going out to clubs in LA mm -hmm. every weekend. They're going to like, you know, um, Coachella and everyone, you know, they're like hanging out, watching episodes of the show. Everyone is the bestest that's, of friends. That's awesome. And then at a certain point, it's like, I need to like get my movie career going, you know, I like, and suddenly it's like, nobody's hanging out. So you talk to people who joined the show in season three and they're like, nobody ever had me over for dinner. Like they were nice, you know? And then I was told later on, like nobody was going to dinner at that point. So it, was, it wasn't like they were shutting me out. It's just the vibe had completely changed. So you get a lot of that. You get a lot of people wanted off the show because while it had made them famous, it was now keeping them too busy to go off and like capitalize on that fame. There's a lot going on here. It, I wonder, is, is that even a problem anymore? Because now it's all like, isn't it like mostly like there's limited series. You're going to get two seasons. You might get exactly. three seasons, you know? Yeah. You, can, um, yeah. you can do five things in a year, but when you're doing, I, I believe the OC did 25, 27 episodes, then 25, then either 24 or 26. The last year they only did 15 wow. because Fox was ready to be done with them. Okay. But the point is it was like, maybe you could do one thing on your hiatus and it wouldn't even necessarily be a big thing. Like Adam Brody is in Mr. And Mrs. Smith, but he's obviously not one of the two leads yeah. of that movie. So yeah. it just became very, very hard. And, you know, and again, times have changed now. You could come in, you could do an HBO show and still have a good chunk of your year to go off and do other things. Uh, two more of them. Let me get you here. Uh, what is someone who was watching the OC 20 years ago, what is that person watching now? Uh, I, I is it YouTube? Uh, I don't TikTok. I, 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 no, I, I mean, if you were if you were watching it, then you're old enough that I think probably. Oh no, I mean like that a person that oh, age. Yes, yes, <laughs> a person who was in the Target demo. Yes, yeah. yes. No, they're they're watching TikTok. Sometimes what they're doing is they're watching episodes of like TV shows on TikTok. That's the big thing now. Wait, is what? like. Yeah, no, no. They will break down episodes of television into like two or three minute chunks, maybe even shorter than that. I don't know. I'm not actually on TikTok because I have like an addictive personality where if I got on it, I would never do anything else for the rest of my life. And I need to be productive. Please but go on TikTok, Alan. I think the world, the world needs that. My understanding is like, uh, like Suits, for instance, which was sort of this big phenomenon yes. over the summer. In part, it was that because like people were uploading entire episodes of suits broken down into these little, you know, TikTok size chapters. And so people would watch all of that and eventually go, okay, I want to, I want to see this on my real TV or on my tablet or whatever, um, you know, without the interruptions, this happens a lot. So I wouldn't be surprised if someone out there is doing that with the OC, but obviously like with my kids love TV, but that's because they have me as a dad and a <laughs> lot of their peers, like, you know, they're, they, they go to TikTok, they go to YouTube, you know, they're just watching different kinds of things than we are. And there are definitely some TV shows that break through euphoria. I know, you know, was a big deal with that demographic and probably will be whenever it returns, but it's kind of harder and harder for that. Whereas I grew up in a time where it was like TV was the great bulk of your media diet. And now it might be like 10% of it for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's wild. I, I have not wrapped my mind around that fully. Uh, last thing uh, you were, you were such a huge proponent um, all the way through of reservation dogs you just wrote eloquently about the <sighs> final episode of that show i know it's you know it's a uh sad sad moment because it's over so uh can you can you give our audience something i think i always ask you this something something you're excited about something you're interested in just 
yeah, anything. Oh, uh, God, let me think. Oh, there's there's a, a Scott Pilgrim anime series coming up next month on Netflix. I, wow. I think it's probably embargoed in terms of opinion, but I'm moderating like the New York Comic Con panel this Saturday. And I That's think awesome. you can you can read between the lines about whether or not I like a show if I'm moderating its Comic Con panel. But they yeah. brought back the entire cast of the movie to do the voice role. So it's like Michael Sarah, you know, Mary oh, Elizabeth wow. Winstead, Chris Evans, Aubrey Plaza, Brie Larson, everybody is back. Um, That's awesome. And I'm not allowed to say anything about it, but again, okay, I'm, I'm, there was excitement in the Seppenwall household when we were able to watch screeners of that. And that is the most I should say. Okay. Say no more. Uh, come to, come to Netflix. Good to, good to know. Um, we said it already November 28th. I think Andrew's going to get the book up on screen again. Um, it is the oral history of, well, by title of the book is Welcome to the OC, the oral history. Uh, of course, Alan Seppenwall in conversation with Josh Schwartz, Stephanie Savage, and of course, the cast and crew um, pre-order yours today uh, for anybody who may not know pre-ordering is kind of a big deal uh, to people who uh, write books. So the yes. link, for the, the link for the pre-order will be in the description of this episode. Um, it, it's I, again, having read Alan's books before uh, I, I'm, I'm obviously a little biased, but like uh, the last one, the Sopranos book, I li- quite literally could not put that down. Um, you have a, a way of writing that is um, uh, certainly infectious. And uh, there's, hey, there's a reason why you've had a job for like the last however many years you've had. And why you're still at the forefront of this all these years later, which, um, yeah, it's just it's an honor to get to talk to you about this stuff, man. Look, I like if you want me to stay on for another half an hour and I can go through a litany of issues with how Leon Rose has handled the draft uh, in his administration. <laughs> I'm happy to do that, but I'm not going to. Instead, I will say and I appreciate the plug. Pre-ordering, I will reiterate, is hugely important in the publishing industry these days. But also, if you pre-order, like you will get a free nice. bonus chapter right now. Like, you know, as soon as you submit the, the proof of purchase from Amazon or anywhere else, you get it. It will be emailed to you. Um, so you get a little content, a little taste of it before you get to the Thanksgiving season. Alan, I'm already anticipating the email if like Jalen Williams comes out and is like putting up 20 20- <sighs> Five and five over the first one. I know it's coming. I know it's who coming. Would you, so who would you rather have? What would you rather have, John? Like three Fugazi highly protected draft picks or Jalen Williams? You know, or no, this, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Who? What would you rather have? Three Fugazi highly protected draft picks and Isaiah Hartenstein. I, I was about I be- to say. I, be- I believe we had to make some of those moves to create the cap space for Hartenstein yeah, or yeah. Jalen Williams. I love Hartenstein, but come on, man. Like. I- Take some kids. Do it, please. I I hope that one doesn't come back to. I hope it's not mentioned in the same breath as as the knocks over uh, McAlpin. Oh, or for that. Yeah, I mean, when you were talking about Halliburton earlier, it's like wow, I was fast. really, I was really trying to keep my mouth shut, and I loved Obi Toppin as much as anyone, but that just kills me. It kills. And now me. they and now they play together. I'm sure that that'll be, <laughs> be awesome. I want nothing I, like I want nothing but the best for Obi. And if they wind up having an awesome season, that's great. But uh, at the same time, it will kill me. Yeah, no, um, Obi couldn't have a nicer guy. It, it's 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 going to hurt a little bit. Alan Seppenwell, ladies and gentlemen, he's the best that there is. Go uh, pre-order the book, uh, subscribe to his Substack, and uh, just read anything he writes because um, there's not there's not enough I could say about how, how good he is and what he does and how much of a mastery he has over um, what he writes about. So uh, thank you, my friend. Always a pleasure. Hashtag free Jalen Martin. All right. Hope you enjoyed that chat with Alan. Uh, Alan's great. You could find him on um, all of the social media apps and definitely go and, and read it for real. Go read anything he does uh, because there's just like, I don't know. I find it really enjoyable slash insightful slash just rewarding whenever I read somebody writing their opinions and analysis um, on an important thing. And I do think television is still a very important thing um, when it is clear that the person has just a mastery of the apparatus as a whole, like Alan understands television so well and you know, when it's so obvious when you read what he what he writes about it. And it's just like, cool, even if you're not like into TV or anything or, you you know, you don't watch any of the shows or many of the shows that he that he writes about. Um, 
you know, he's like at the top of his of his game and there's not I, I don't think really anybody who does it as well as he does. So um yeah, just shout out to Alan Sapro. He's he's a really good dude too. A reminder to check out on this podcast feed right now the newest episode of KFS Study Hall. Yes, KFS Study Hall is back with uh your friends uh Sean, Mensa, Chris they're bringing the heat. It was a great episode. So check that out. And also, uh, just as importantly, tonight, Wednesday at 9 p.m. live on the Knicks Film School YouTube channel, um, the dynamic duo, I mean, truly they are, um, of Benji Ritholtz and DJ Zulo will be on, um, giving you, uh, frankly, the best analysis of, of basketball anywhere and actual really good analysis. Not, not what I try to pass off as analysis. So uh, come and check them out. 9 PM KFS YouTube, be there, be square, be there or be square. So if you, if you're there, you're not square. If you're not there, then you are square. That's Andrew's giving me a funny look. All right. I'm going to go. Thanks everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Peace out. happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com